Section 30 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Friday, March 16, 1906. Schoolmates of sixty years ago, Mary Miller, one of Mr. Clemens' first sweethearts, Artemisia Briggs, another, Mary Lacey, another, Jimmy McDaniel, to whom Mr. Clemens told his first humorous story, Mr. Richmond, Sunday-school teacher, afterwards owner of Tom Sawyer's Cave, which is now being ground into cement, Hickman, the showy young captain, Royal Gridley, and the sack of flour incident, the eleven Jew boys called twenty-two, George Butler, nephew of Ben Butler, the incident of getting into bed with Will Bowen to catch the measles, and the successful and nearly fatal case which resulted. We will return to those school children of sixty years ago. I recall Mary Miller. She was not my first sweetheart, but I think she was the first one that furnished me a broken heart. I fell in love with her when she was eighteen, and I nine. But she scorned me, and I recognized that this was a cold world. I had not noticed that temperature before. I believe I was as miserable as a grown man could be. But I think that this sorrow did not remain with me long. As I remember it, I soon transferred my worship to Artemisia Briggs, who was a year older than Mary Miller. When I revealed my passion to her, she did not scoff at it. She did not make fun of it. She was very kind and gentle about it. But she was also firm, and said she did not want to be pestered by children. And there was Mary Lacey. She was a schoolmate, but she also was out of my class because of her advanced age. She was pretty wild and determined and independent. She was ungovernable and was considered incorrigible. But that was all a mistake. She married and at once settled down and became in all ways a model matron and was as highly respected as any matron in the town. Four years ago she was still living, and had been married fifty years. Jimmy McDaniel was another schoolmate. His age and mine about tallied. His father kept the candy shop, and he was the most envied little chap in the town, after Tom Blankenship, for although we never saw him eating candy, we supposed that it was, nevertheless, his ordinary diet. He pretended that he never ate it, didn't care for it, because there was nothing forbidden about it. There was plenty of it, and he could have as much of it as he wanted. Still there was circumstantial evidence that suggested that he only scorned candy in public to show off, for he had the worst teeth in town. He was the first human being to whom I ever told a humorous story, so far as I can remember. This was about 
Jim Wolf and the Cats, and I gave him that tale the morning after that memorable episode. I thought he would laugh his remaining teeth out. I had never been so proud and happy before, and I have seldom been so proud and happy since. I saw him four years ago when I was out there. He was working in a cigar-making shop. He wore an apron that came down to his knees and a beard that came nearly half as far, and yet it was not difficult for me to recognize him. He had been married fifty-four years. He had many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and also even posterity. They all said, thousands, yet the boy to whom I had told the cat story when we were fourteen years old was still present in that cheerful little old man. Artemisia Briggs got married not long after refusing me. She married Richmond, the stonemason, who was my Methodist Sunday school teacher in the earliest days, and he had one distinction which I envied him. He was a very kindly and considerate Sunday school teacher, and patient, and compassionate, so he was the favorite teacher with us little chaps. In that school they had slender oblong pasteboard blue tickets, each with a verse from the Testament printed on it, and you could get a blue ticket by reciting two verses. By reciting five verses you could get three blue tickets, and you could trade these at the bookcase and borrow a book for a week. I was under Mr. Richmond's spiritual care every now and then for two or three years, and he was never hard upon me. I always recited the same five verses every Sunday. He was always satisfied with the performance. He never seemed to notice that these were the same five foolish virgins that he had been hearing about every Sunday for months. I always got my tickets and exchanged them for a book. They were pretty dreary books, for there was not a bad boy in the entire bookcase. They were all good boys and good girls and drearily uninteresting, but they were better society than none, and I was glad to have their company and disapprove of it. Twenty years ago Mr. Richmond had become possessed of Tom Sawyer's cave in the hills three miles from town, and had made a tourist resort of it. In 1849, when the gold-seekers were streaming through our little town of Hannibal, many of our grown men got the gold fever, and I think that all the boys had it. On the Saturday holidays, in summertime, we used to borrow skiffs whose owners were not present, and go down the river three miles to the cave hollow, and there we staked out claims and pretended to dig gold, panning out half a dollar a day at first, two or three times as much later, 
and by and by whole fortunes as our imaginations became inured to the work stupid and unprophetic lads we were doing this in play and never suspecting why that cave hollow and all the adjacent hills were made of gold but we did not know it we took it for dirt we left its rich secret in its own peaceful possession and grew up in poverty and went wandering about the world struggling for bread and this because we had not the gift of prophecy that region was all dirt and rocks to us yet all it needed was to be ground up and scientifically handled and it was gold that is to say the whole region was a cement mine and they make the finest kind of portland cement there now five thousand barrels a day with a plant that cost two million dollars several months ago a telegram came to me from there saying that tom sawyer's cave was now being ground into cement would i like to say anything about it in public but i had nothing to say i was sorry we lost our cement mine but it was not worth while to talk about it at this late day and to take it all around it was a painful subject anyway there are seven miles of tom sawyer's cave that is to say the lofty ridge which conceals that cave stretches down the bank of the mississippi seven miles to the town of saverton for a little while rule gridley attended that school of ours he was an elderly pupil he was perhaps twenty-two or twenty-three years old then came the mexican war and he volunteered a company of infantry was raised in our town and mr hickman a tall straight handsome athlete of twenty-five was made captain of it and had a sword by his side and a broad yellow stripe down the leg of his gray uniform pants and when that company marched back and forth through the streets in its smart uniform which it did several times a day for drill its evolutions were attended by all the boys whenever the school hours permitted i can see that marching company yet and i can almost feel again the consuming desire that i had to join it but they had no use for boys of twelve and thirteen and before i had a chance in another war the desire to kill people to whom i had not been introduced had passed away i saw the splendid hickman in his old age he seemed about the oldest man i had ever seen an amazing and melancholy contrast with the showy young captain i had seen preparing his warriors for carnage so many many years before hickman is dead it is the old story as susie said what is it all for rule gridley went away to the wars and we heard of him no more for fifteen or sixteen years 
Then one day in Carson City, while I was having a difficulty with an editor on the sidewalk, an editor better built for war than I was, I heard a voice say, Give him the best you've got, Sam. I'm at your back. It was Rule Gridley. He said he had not recognized me by my face, but by my drawling style of speech. He went down to the Rees River mines about that time, and presently he lost an election bet in his mining camp, and by the terms of it he was obliged to buy a fifty-pound sack of self-rising flour and carry it through the town, preceded by music, and deliver it to the winner of the bet. Of course the whole camp was present, and full of fluid and enthusiasm. The winner of the bet put up the sack at auction for the benefit of the United States Sanitary Fund, and sold it. The purchaser put it up for the fund, and sold it. The excitement grew and grew. The sack was sold over and over again for the benefit of the fund. The news of it came to Virginia City by telegraph. It produced great enthusiasm, and Rule Gridley was begged by telegraph to bring the sack and have an auction in Virginia City. He brought it. An open barouche was provided, also a brass band. The sack was sold over and over again at Gold Hill, then was brought up to Virginia City toward night and sold and sold again, netting twenty or thirty thousand dollars for the sanitary fund. Gridley carried it across California, selling it at various towns. He sold it for large sums in Sacramento and in San Francisco. He brought it east, sold it in New York and in various other cities, finally carried it out to a great fair in St. Louis, went on selling it, finally made it up into small cakes and sold those at a dollar apiece. First and last, the sack of flour which had originally cost five dollars, perhaps, netted more than two hundred thousand dollars for the sanitary fund. Rule Gridley has been dead these many, many years. It is the old story. In that school were the first Jews I had ever seen. It took me a good while to get over the awe of it. To my fancy they were clothed invisibly in the damp and cobwebby mold of antiquity. They carried me back to Egypt, and in imagination I moved among the pharaohs and all the shadowy celebrities of that remote age. The name of the boys was Levin. We had a collective name for them which was the only really large and handsome witticism that was ever born on those premises. We called them twenty-two, and even when the joke was old and had been worn threadbare, we always followed it with the explanation to make sure that it would be understood. 
twice leaven. Twenty-two. There were other boys whose names remain with me, Irving Ayers, but no matter, he's dead. George Butler, whom I remember as a child of seven, wearing a blue leather belt with a brass buckle, and hated and envied by all the boys on account of it. He was a nephew of General Ben Butler, and fought gallantly at Ball's Bluff and in several other actions of the Civil War. He is dead long and long ago. Will Bowen, dead long ago, Ed Stevens, dead long ago, and John Briggs were special mates of mine. John is still living. In 1845, when I was ten years old, there was an epidemic of measles in the town, and it made a most alarming slaughter among the little people. There was a funeral almost daily, and the mothers of the town were nearly demented with fright. My mother was greatly troubled. She worried over Pamela and Henry and me, and took constant and extraordinary pains to keep us from coming into contact with the contagion. But upon reflection I believed that her judgment was at fault. It seemed to me that I could improve upon it if left to my own devices. I cannot remember now whether I was frightened about the measles or not, but I clearly remember that I grew very tired of the suspense I suffered on account of being continually under the threat of death. I remember that I got so weary of it, and so anxious to have the matter settled one way or the other, and promptly, that this anxiety spoiled my days and nights. I had no pleasure in them. I made up my mind to end this suspense and settle this matter one way or the other and be done with it. Will Bowen was dangerously ill with the measles, and I thought I would go down there and catch them. I entered the house by the front way and slipped along through rooms and halls, keeping sharp watch against discovery, and at last I reached Will's bedroom in the rear of the house on the second floor and got into it uncaptured. But that was as far as my victory reached. His mother caught me there a moment later and snatched me out of the house and gave me a most competent scolding and drove me away. She was so scared that she could hardly get her words out, and her face was white. I saw that I must manage better next time, and I did. I hung about the lane at the rear of the house and watched through cracks in the fence until I was convinced that the conditions were favorable. Then I slipped through the back yard and up the back way and got into the room and into the bed with Bill Bowen without being observed. I don't know how long I was in the bed. I only remember that Will Bowen, as society, 
had no value for me, for he was too sick to even notice that I was there. When I heard his mother coming, I covered up my head, but that device was a failure. It was dead summertime. The cover was nothing more than a limp blanket or sheet, and anybody could see that there were two of us under it. It didn't remain two very long. Mrs. Bowen snatched me out of that bed and conducted me home herself with a grip on my collar which she never loosened until she delivered me into my mother's hands along with her opinion of that kind of a boy. It was a good case of measles that resulted. It brought me within a shade of death's door. It brought me to where I no longer felt any interest in anything, but on the contrary felt a total absence of interest, which was most placid and tranquil and sweet and delightful and enchanting. I have never enjoyed anything in my life any more than I enjoyed dying that time. I was, in effect, dying. The word had been passed, and the family notified to assemble around the bed and see me off. I knew them all. There was no doubtfulness in my vision. They were all crying, but that did not affect me. I took but the vaguest interest in it, and that merely because I was the center of all this emotional attention, and was gratified by it, and felt complimented. When Dr. Cunningham had made up his mind that nothing more could be done for me, he put bags of hot ashes all over me. He put them on my breast, on my wrists, on my ankles, and so, very much to his astonishment, and doubtless to my regret, he dragged me back into this world and set me going again. End of section 30, Friday, March 16th, 1906.